Langston, darling, how lovely to see you again. Hi, honey. <laughs> Come with me. I'm dying to speak to you about your poetry. <laughs> Please, Langston, darling, just one or two verses of your latest book of poems. Uh, I'm more writer than performer. Hollywood has no culture. Please, you must. All right. If I must. Here's my latest. <clears throat> now this is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down. I'd like to take a minute, just sit right there. I'll tell you how I became the prince of a town called Bel Air. Well, that was truly Awful. Welcome back to Who and Company, where Doctor Who fans join the company to discuss themselves, their work, Doctor Who, and another show they love. It's episode 53. I'm Brent. And I'm Drew. Our guest this month is writer and game designer Chris Spivey, whose award-winning 2018 role-playing game Harlem Unbound has really opened the conversation of race and representation in the industry, both as players and creators. Chris is an avid Doctor Who fan, and this month's conversation ranges from his beginnings in gaming, his love of Doctor Who, to his pick of the month the short-lived but well-loved sci-fi time travel show, Timeless. Now, we are issuing a spoiler warning for anyone interested in seeing Timeless. We do spoil it just a bit, so if you want to pause this episode and go watch all 27 episodes now streaming on Hulu in the U.S., please do! It's worth it. Then come back and listen to our interview with Chris Spivey. Before we get to that, we wanted to say a few words about the passing of Jackie Lane, who played Dodo on Doctor Who in the 60s. I was reading that she quit acting not long after she was let go from Doctor Who, and she wasn't very happy about just disappearing from the screen. She wanted a goodbye scene. But she got her revenge on Ennis Lloyd, who was the producer at the time, and uh, as later she ran a voiceover agency, and he called for work. So she reminded him how he fired her from Doctor Who and said a very firm no. She later became a diplomatic secretary for the Australian government, an antiques dealer, and then became the agent for none other than Tom Baker. Now, unfortunately, she never made it to Big Finish because she was apparently really shy, so that's a shame. But yeah, R.I.P. Jackie Lane, who will always remember in Doctor Who, a show we will talk about with our guest, Chris Bivey. And that's coming up right after this clip of Jackie Lane. Oh, bless you, my dear. Oh, thanks. You uh, have a handkerchief, I hope? Of course I have. Well, then use it, my child. You must do something about that coal of yours. That reminds me, why, why are you dressed in these stupid clothes? Hmm? Have you been fruitling about in my wardrobe? Is that what it is? What do you think you're playing at? Crusades? I'm not playing at anything. Is it all right to wear them? Do I have to ask permission for that as well? Yes, you do, my dear. Now, you take care of them. You never know when we might use them. Now, I suggest we take a last look round and... Uh, We'll get you up to bed. Oh, you're not going to send me home, are you? Home? Oh, what an idea. Mm. 
I couldn't send you home even if I wanted to. Oh, that's all right then. I think I'm beginning to enjoy this space travel or whatever it is. Our guest this month is the award-winning designer of Harlem Unbound, a source book for the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. His most recent project, Haunted West, is due for release later this year. Chris Spivey, welcome to Who and Company. Howdy, everyone. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, I even went old, old, old West right there for you. With the yeah. Yeah, yeah. Howdy's good. Howdy's. I feel like Howdy needs to make a comeback. I'm I'm very much a Howdy. In fact, if uh, most of my online persona is Boy Howdy. <laughs> it's my superhero name in um what was that city of heroes yeah city of heroes i was boy howdy um your contribution to role-playing games is kind of incredible um i know that brent brent and i we have we've discussed role-playing games a couple times on the podcast but clearly not a podcast about role-playing games but it is a dominant part of my life um and just what has sort of come about with Harlem Unbound is sort of revolutionizing, I think, a, how a lot of people are seeing role-playing games in general. But before we get to that, I'm, I'm kind of curious, how did you start with role-playing games? What's your what's your uh, RPG origin story? Uh, I think like a lot of folks, I started with the red box set back yes. when I was a wee wee lad of six or seven. Mm-hmm. My my friend Jay and I, this was in Alabama, and this was at the, the old times when as a six or seven-year-old kid, you could walk out of your home halfway across town without your guardians paying any attention to that happening. Um, and so we we walked halfway across town to the one of the only hobby shops in Auburn at the time, and we bought the red box set, and we came back, and we started flipping through it, and my first ever character I made was an elf, because I liked the idea of sword fighting and magic. Yeah, elves, elves in the old red box were great, man. And I, I actually don't really... Remember playing anything but that. Uh, yeah, D&D, fantastic. Um, so where'd you go from there? So one of the things for me, even as we sort of played D&D and I kept looking through it, a lot of the books didn't have anyone that looked like me. Mm-hmm. So that sort of killed a lot of my interest in fantasy and it sort of moved me into the sci-fi genre. was sort of a, a quick step. That and superheroes. Uh, I could wax poetic about the love of superheroes um, writing all, a slew of unpublished comics I wrote all for myself that I that I hand drew uh, which would be an embarrassment even for my seven year old to see <laughs> yeah you should, but you've kept them um, I'm not gonna admit that I have them in case someone asks about them I will only say they existed at one point in time Chris I have all the comics that I've ever drawn uh, as a angsty youth in the early late 80s early 90s uh, they all look like Rob Liefeld characters with huge guns, many pockets, and no feet. Um, <laughs> it's all ultra-violent. They're all grim-dark. It's so incredibly embarrassing how unoriginal. Uh, but my two influences were essentially that that anti-hero movement of the early 90s, but also Douglas Adams' uh, kind of weird sense of British humor. <laughs> and so... As you can imagine, those two don't mesh well, and yet I didn't stop, and I still have them. And every once in a while, I like to humble myself by uh, picking them those out and reading through them, and just thanking God that I'm not that kid anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so but, the uh, thing for me is, I'll admit, I, I, I'm always a writer and not an artist. So sure. while you're drawing like these great figures with like big guns and everything else, I have my stick figures in motion. 
thinking with like notes saying later this character should probably have a costume that looks like this when you learn to draw <laughs> yeah no I, I i i definitely that was i was <sighs> i definitely am a writer and not an artist uh but writing writing the comics and then asking other people to do the art didn't really go over particularly well um, back in the day. But I, I kind of want to bring the conversation back around to role-playing games because you had said, and you're 100% right in this, that the fantasy genre of that time period did not uh, did not show anything but white people. Um, uh, but did the sci-fi uh, superhero RPGs at the time, uh, were those a little bit more to your liking? I mean, I know there's, there's certainly a... Uh, a, a dearth of 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 any kind of diversity in comics in general up to a certain point. So what what they lacked, you could sort of make up for if your hero's in a mask. Then you could at least try to envision yourself being in the mask doing that. Right. Which is a, a horrible substitute. But if you're mm-hmm. enjoying a genre, you try to find a way where it applies to you. So sure. superheroes did a lot of that because they were also uh, black superheroes. They were not well-written uh, a lot of the time, no. But it was a it was a foundation to work from. Gotcha. Cool. What system were you using for your superhero RPGs? Because I've yet to find one that I really love. Uh, modern day, though, I hear there's a lot of uh, a lot of good ones have come out in the last couple of years. So in the old days, I and I still love it. I, I actually ran a game of it um, last year. The old PSR Marvel superheroes. Because mm-hmm. there's nothing better than like the D100 and the table and the chart. It's easy to like get new gamers to understand. You can come up with a quick session off the top of your head. Sure. More modern day, I'm I'm firmly entrenched in the Arc Dreams Wild Talent sort of genre because mm-hmm. I like the idea of power, but power has to come with some sort of cost associated with it. Sure. And for them, you sort of spend a will and things happen. I kind of took that concept and rolled that into the superheroes thing that I wrote for Cthulhu. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever Chaos Team decides to pull it. That's, well, I mean, I didn't know that, so I'm very excited to, to see your work in the superhero genre. It's not one that I've played recently. Uh, considering that superhero movies are sort of the de facto movie genre right now, the, the kind of tour de force, the... the the genre du jour, so to speak. Uh, it, it, I was just thinking that this would be a really kind of a fun genre to play because I, I work with a lot of teens uh, young and young people, and I'm trying to get them more into role-playing games as part of getting them to come into the library. So right now D&D is, of course, the, the, the forefront of that because thanks to Stranger Things, it's, it's kind of uh, popular again, even if many of them didn't know what it was before we started playing. Uh, so it's a fairly easy genre to get into, but superheroes—I mean, why not, right? That would be great. I'd, uh, so maybe I'll take a look at that. I'm not 100% sure if I would bring Cthulhu superhero genre in for 13-year-olds, but um, at least not in a public space. But uh, I, I certainly could maybe throw down with that. What's not to love? Equivalently, seeing Blue Marvel go head to head with a Shogoth. Oh my gosh! Uh, I just have to explain to who Blue Marvel is, though, to my. Players, but you're absolutely right. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know. I put my money on Blue Marvel, but uh, <laughs> yeah, very, very cool. cool. Or for an easier reference, or an easier reference, uh, you've got Captain America versus like sixty points, sort mm-hmm. of throwing and bouncing the shield around while flipping over them, and still having to deal with the the horror of encountering um, a deep point. 
Yeah. Oh, deep ones. So cool. I, I will frequently bring that sort of aspect of the, the mythos in. Well, speaking of it, uh, so for those listeners, again, not a role-playing podcast, but um, <laughs> for, for those listeners who aren't possibly, uh, possibly familiar with Harlem Unbound, do you want to tell us a little about that and, and kind of how you decided to you know, put your eggs in that basket? <laughs> um, so Harlem Unbound is a historical role-playing game that's based on 1920s Harlem during the Renaissance. It was a, a period... Um, of the time that was considered to be black excellence. There was music, there was food, there was dancing, there was a political revolutionary move to try to make the world and the country better. And it all sort of screamed out of Harlem. And I took that in concept of itself because a lot of people hadn't heard about the Harlem Renaissance, which is shocking. And then I infused that with the mythos. Because one of the things I wanted to do with the book was address systematic racism in gaming and the world. And I thought one of the best ways to do that would be to use this, we're going to say a foundational figure that so many people have built their work off of, who was an ardent racist, and to like take that and use that as a fulcrum to sort of explain about the, and try to explain everything to people in a way that would be engaging and for them to sort of build up some level of empathy with people that they would, that some people consider different than themselves. Because one of the things that gaming teaches us is empathy with others and doing it in a gaming environment means you're a group of people tackling this tough, tough topic and subject that is still incredibly prevalent in the world today and making you face those things and then talk about them and think about them even when you leave the gaming table is unbelievably powerful. Right. Oh, and, and the game does so um, in, in a way that I think is so fascinating, which is uh, especially for folks who are used to playing characters in a certain way, is that you have to play... Well, we don't have to play, but the is it the major what the rule is is the majority of the players have to play as a character who would be considered marginalized for that time, correct? Is that the the statement in the book and stands by the baseline assumption is every character is black. Mm-hmm. If you want to make someone else you can, but then that's a conscious choice on your part to decide to do that. Right. Okay. Because a have... lot of the books as they're written, the baseline assumption is always everyone is going to be white. Mm-hmm. And that is something else I want to sort of address head on is make a blanket statement about it. Because even I know myself when I go to Gen Con, when I went to Gen Con in the old times, whenever I show up at a gaming table, all of the pre-generate characters, 95% of them are always white. Mm-hmm. And I'm still forced to play a white character. And I thought that it would be great if people also understood that there's an array of other types of characters of different races, genders, and everything else they can play. Right. That's great. I've yet to play. Um, really looking forward to eventually getting around to doing it, but I have watched several groups play, and I've watched you run uh, a number of games online, which I've really enjoyed all of those. The The stories that come out of that aspect of it is is very different from, from what I'm used to watching, and, and I'm very thankful for that because it's always great to tell stories that we're uh, either not used to hearing or um, just tell a different story. So that's pretty brilliant. And it won a bunch of awards too. So you know that you've got that going for you, which is pretty pretty excellent. With three golden awards for the in twenty eighteen. Uh, so it won three golden A's. It won 
the and one or two other awards were nominated for a few things. It's in a couple of museums. It's also being taught at at least one university as part of their as part of their core syllabus. So it was a lot of work, and I'm incredibly happy that people embraced it the way they did, and it has made at least a small impact somewhere. Well, um, I am currently working with the university that I'm at to curate a gaming library that will be a part of its permanent collection, and uh, we're going to start small, and we're going to start with games that kind of focus on diversity and storytelling, and, and uh, Harlem Unbound was the first one on the list that I, I pitched to them. So I'm still waiting to hear what, uh, you know, this is a weird year for, for doing anything, um, but uh, my hope is that when we move forward, Harlem Unbound, uh, probably the second edition of it, will be one of the first books to, to be picked up and put in that permanent connection. So, uh, and for, for all the reasons that you just listed. So I, I, you know, I thank you for putting that out there. Thank you. It, it was a passion project. Part of it is because a lot of parliaments lived with me, I think most of my life, because my cousin is Zora Hurston, and I wanted to also honor her. And my daughter is named for her. That's so cool on all levels. It's so cool. Um, well, I've been very quiet because I am absolutely have never played any kind of RPG in my entire life. So I, but we have a local um, Alamo Draft House here, and they actually sell some of these games. So I've picked them up and looked at them. Things like The Godfather and uh, John Carpenter's The Thing, mm. um, things like that look really cool. So I'm I see here that you're working on one called Haunted West. Does that does that have to do with a western? What, what's that about? So Haunted West is Dark East Studios' second project. It's a historical role playing game. You may notice the trend. Um, historical role playing game that's set in the old west, and the primary objective of the game is to sort of shine a spotlight on all the forgotten voices that made up America. Because the stories that we see in media and that we're constantly force-fed is that it was a white, primarily dominated place that sort of established the world for us. And that's not true. And I want to tell a truer version of the West to include all the different races, genders, and some of the ideologies and everything else that I could. And so it's been an incredibly intensive research every project. Uh, I think I bought... And on my shelf alone, this doesn't count online stuff or digital media, 70 books for the project that I've had to read through. Wow. Because trying to tell a story like this isn't just telling a story about um, black people, but it's telling a story about what became America, which is an all-encompassing tale. And so part, one of the harder parts of the project was not to steal anyone else's stories because they're not mine to tell. So I'm telling a story about America, and I brought in a slew of other diverse voices from all sorts of different backgrounds to help shape and tell this story with me. That's really cool. And on top of that, we may have added in some weird West with jetpacks, <laughs> vampires, T-Rexes. And if that wasn't quite enough yet, I decided that I would also introduce my own alternate timeline that what if the reconstruction had worked? Because the reconstruction was this brilliant thing that was coming out after the end of the Civil War where it would have, it gave black men the right to vote, but as it kept going, it would have given everyone the right to vote. It would have fixed the country from what the forefathers didn't do as much as it could, given the fact that it's still a colonizing effect. And to come here and in the land that we have, 
was land that was already being used by the indigenous nations that were here. And so Haunted West Reconstruction is telling like a, the starting of what happens if the reconstruction actually worked and not been killed by white men in back rooms for power plays to help elevate themselves and let racism dominate the day. And I provide the first five years of that sort of inspiration for you in the core book because the core book is doing so many things and I'm introducing a brand new gaming system um, which has three different tiers of play. There's a standard sort of tier that everyone's used to that sort of theater to mind. Then there's a more narrative version and then there's a miniatures combat section to it too. Oh, so wow. the book is doing a lot of different things. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. I wasn't aware about the, the whole different levels of play. Uh, it's going to be a massive tome and it's going to be able to stop a bullet. <laughs> uh, so when's that coming out? Um, soon. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I've pre-ordered mine. I'm very excited. Uh, in fact, we've been watching a lot of westerns recently. Uh, just sort of, I don't know what. It's just kind of in the air, and uh, I, I, I agree that it, it the the depiction is has been very white. And uh, there's not a lot of films out there, or at least I wasn't aware of a lot of films, but th- there seems to be that if you go looking for them, more being made uh, in which we, we get groups that are, are a little bit more diversity depicted. I was just going to say, like, the trailer that dropped the other day, The Harder They Fall. Oh, my God, how excited are you for that show, that movie? Yeah. <laughs> it, it's like the universe said, we want to talk about this thing that you've been talking about for two years. Here's this awesome cast of people doing this incredible thing. And oh. so I was done. I've rewatched the trailer multiple times. Brent, have you watched the trailer for The Harder They Fall? I am currently looking it up. <laughs> oh my goodness. Did I t- love like, westerns. I, I love westerns. I used to watch Gunsmoke a lot with my dad. Yeah. And, and you know, watched a lot of movies and, and um, absolutely loved the new version of um, Magnificent Seven that came out a few years ago. And... Um, but yeah, you're right. There, there's not a lot of diversity in in these westerns. No, not at all. We watched. Uh, I watched Bush Cassidy and the Sundance Kid for the first time uh, two nights ago. Uh, can't believe I hadn't seen that one. You were doing a Robert Redford retrospective right now, and and uh, just sort of watching it. And uh, such a good film, really, kind of quite brilliant. Um, yeah, yeah. How do they fall? Looks amazing. Um, Brent, I, don't don't watch it while we're talking. <laughs> no, because <laughs> then all we're gonna hear is you going, "Whoa, awesome!" And you have to hear, <laughs> you have to hear it, uh, folks. Stop what you're doing. Pause the podcast. Go online. Look it up. It's coming out very soon. Uh, take a look. Yeah, I was watching it, going, "This feels like a role playing game scenario that is quite brilliant." Uh, looking forward to it. Idris Elba's reveal is amazing. <laughs> And I cannot, <laughs> cannot wait to just sit down and take that one apart. So, and then um, Hell on the Border just dropped um, fairly recently. I haven't gotten a chance to watch that one, but uh, because it is a Bass Reeves film, a uh, film about Bass Reeves, and we'll we'll talk a little bit more about Bass Reeves when we get to our pick of the month. But uh, before we get to that. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about you know we, we bring on folks who are who are Doctor Who fans. Um, when did you first begin watching Doctor Who? So in, in addition to some of the other things I'm doing, I also do freelance writing. And one of the, the great pleasures I had I don't know if it'll be published now, but I got to write the 
game moderator section for the 13th Doctor for Cubicle 7 Doctor Who role-playing game. You're kidding me. What? Um, that... I wrote that, I would say, maybe like two years ago now. I'm, I'm not sure what their publishing schedule is because a lot part of the thing about a gaming company is that there's a limited bandwidth. So you have all these great things and you may get them all in the queue, but the ability to put them out is usually staggered out. Mm. So I was, I was excited to do it. Um, if anyone reads it, I think they'll definitely notice some of my, my isms that I like to drop in certain references. I may have snuck in a David Bowie reference to maybe a, a power man reference to Luke Cage. Oh man. Well, I can't wait. Uh, I think, uh, well, that, that's a whole other discussion about th- that that particular uh, RPG for Doctor Who. I mean, we can talk about that here in a bit. Did you ever play the old old uh, the old Doctor Who games? The Fossil one, yes. Yeah, and yeah. I've I've got I don't remember what it's called, but I picked up in the '80s. It's got Sylvester McCoy and Ace on the cover. It's a small gray one. I think you don't know what I'm talking about. And it's hard for me to show people as I'm visually holding my hands in the air, sort of like giving you the size of the book that no one can see. It's it's different. It's rules light, but it's it's still fun. And it gives you like sort of all the characters up to that point in time too. And it introduces skills like uh, kit bashing and techno babble, things like that. <laughs> techno babble really is uh, a super important part. Well, speaking of Doctor Who, when did you first start watching the show? One of the things I did when I was growing up, uh, I joined the Boy Scouts, and I was around 10 or 13, between 10 and 13. I was at Boy Scout camp, and one of the, the older scouts was there, because we are sitting on the campfire telling stories, and he was telling us about this great British show that he, that he was watching called Doctor Who, and we're all like, this guy talked. And so we all snuck out of the camp. And went to his house because he lived maybe like four blocks away from where the actual campsite was. And we watched Doctor Who. And it was the second episode of Key to Time. Oh, my. Oh. And at, at that point, I was hooked. And so then I came back, and I was trying to find it on PBS. And PBS in Alabama would show it maybe on Saturday night, anywhere starting from 9 to 11. But PBS would stop at 12.30, regardless of whatever was going on. Hmm. Uh, just for clarification, when you say so, second is second story of the key to time or the second episode? So are we, are we talking to? Um, gotcha. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, pirate with the shrunken planet. Yeah, yeah. Cool, Douglas Adams. You know, can't go wrong with that, man. What a, what a way to introduce yourself to uh, Doctor Who. So that was a lot of fun, and it was definitely hooked me from that point on. What was it about the show? I mean, what was it, you know, it that uh, kind of, I mean, clearly he sold you on it at the, around the campfire, but after watching it, what is it that, that brings you back for more? It was more the fact that the doctor isn't someone that uses necessarily physical violence, but it's more outsmarting and wits to defeat people. That's not to say that the doctor won't use violence. It's not a preferred method. Or as companions that seem to be more violence-inclined for them to do something with. So that was always interesting. And I like the idea of a, a smart protagonist using their wits to constantly do things and solve problems and help people. Do you have a favorite doctor, past or present? Um, so old series, Sylvester McCoy. New series, David Tennant. And why do you pick those? Um, Sylvester McCoy, I like the latter one during the TV show, and then I read all the novels and the big audio drama stuff. 
And I liked Sylvester McCoy, who became Time's Champion, the darker aspects of the Doctor, that even though you're doing all of these things that help people, there is a compromise and a cough. And it, you can't have one without the other. And that makes a stronger character. And seeing the Doctor sort of weigh with those issues and then somewhat manipulating his own companions to do things that they may not have wanted to do for a greater good. And for Tennant, Tennant has a few minor aspects of that, but it's more of an, an action Doctor, which was fun to see because it goes back to the concept that, for me, I like the Doctor as Time's Champion. Someone who's a more active protagonist doing things to try to help which is one of the reasons why when they came out with the Time Lord Victorious, I, I loved it and I hated it all at once. I heard someone describe Tenet as a swashbuckling doctor, and I really like that. I, I know that in many ways they had described Tom Baker in the same way, but uh, I do like the idea that he kind of swoops in and, uh, you know, coat, coat flowing behind him and is more willing to take action. It's sort of using the sonic screwdriver as, as a, a, a foil rather than a sword itself, but... I was happy to see the sonic screwdriver destroyed. I was less amused when it came out. Yeah. You know, you were talking about the uh, Time Lord Victorious. Did you keep up with all the different formats of that? No, I know that um, Big Finish came out with some additional books. I want to say I think the Eighth Doctor took on some of those aspects, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. And I had a chance to listen to them, yeah. Um, Working a full-time job, family, multiple projects, has, has given me very limited bandwidth to do fun things. Yeah, I'm I'm behind completely. I haven't even started yet. It's one of those where I definitely want to sit down and uh, I don't have the kind of patience that a lot of folks seem to have about you know like monthly releases. I really want everything to kind of come out at once, and so I can just lock myself away for the better part of a weekend and just absorb all of it. I know there's some books that are a part of the the Time Lord Victorious as well, and so I want to be able to read those and then listen. So. But it sounds like a great project. I really like cross-media uh, ideas. Like, I think that's fun to be able to play around with multiple medias. I agree. Big Finish has done some incredible work. They salvaged and regenerated the Sixth Doctor into an incredible character. The usage that the BBC had of the Sixth Doctor was abhorrent. I, I like the Valyard, though. I will not lie. I like the Valyard, but the way they told the Sixth Doctor stories and how they treated Colin Baker was horrible. Agreed. I think whenever I try to sell Big Finish on anybody, I I usually recommend eighth or sixth Doctor stories, and I I think of of the Big Finish Doctors, the sixth Doctor is my favorite of the Big Finish. I I enjoy listening to his audios more than anybody else. What kind of stories do you like? Just in general, if you're watching Doctor Who, are there are um, not, for instance, specific stories, but maybe a type of story. Um, I've been inclined for more a sort of mystery high sci-fi mm-hmm. with emotion. Yeah. Do you have – well, I, you recently – and when I say recently, I mean like yesterday uh, – published a, a list of, of your top – was it top 10 favorite Doctor Who – classic Doctor Who stories or maybe 10 best? I, I know you, you sort of set a, a, a preamble to it, but uh, I was very impressed That's with the I, list. I purposely did that. Okay. Um, it was – um, in my opinion, top 10 best or essential. Essential. Doctor Who, old school Doctor Who episodes. Brent, I may have sent you the link. I don't know if you got a chance to, to look at it. Have you gotten a chance to look at it? Because I'm going to, if you haven't, I'm going to ask you what you think his, Chris's number one is because you're going to be very surprised. <laughs> I, I never got the link. 
But, oh, um, no. I'm so sorry. Oh, no, that's <laughs> all right. Um, let's see. Classic. I would have to say uh, maybe Remembrance of the Daleks. Oh. How do you feel? Very good guess. I like it a lot, but that is not number one. I, oh, I okay. Though I, listen, I think I probably would have guessed Remembrance as well, knowing that you like Sylvester McCoy and knowing that uh, what issues are brought up in that specific episode, as well as the fact that it's a really just good episode for that kind of Times Champion. I probably would have guessed that one well, Brent. Uh, what did you choose as your number one, Chris? You want to have this talk, don't you? I chose Ghostlight. I will stand <laughs> by Ghostlight. <laughs> Ghostlight. To the end of time. Yeah. Well, I think Ghostlight is the only Doctor Who ep- No, it's not the only episode that ever made me angry. But um, I, the, I remember the first time watching that being so incredibly upset with Doctor Who because I had no idea what was going on. And I wanted to so badly. Uh, I have watched that episode so many times. I've read the books. I've read the novelizations. I've read um, uh, mutual friend Eric Stadnick, amazing Doctor Who kind of fan and, and just researcher. Uh, his defense of Ghostlight is it's probably one of my favorites. It's one of those stories where I should love it. Should absolutely love it, but I, I still every time I watch it, I feel like it just I just wish there was so like more to it. <laughs> they they needed one more episode. They needed like one more thirty minute episode to breathe, to let it breathe and explain all the bits that were obviously mm-hmm. cut out and are on the yeah. floor somewhere. Yeah, I admitted in that post it is a hot mess. And this is a, a controversial controversial choice when it's mine. But the mood, the setting, the character development, it is spot on. And the relationship between the Doctor and Ace, which is if you're a huge 7th and Ace fan, is beautifully cold in one specific scene in the entire piece. And it makes it... Yeah. Okay. <laughs> How do you yeah, feel about that is. episode, Brent? I do like it. And, and everything you just said was true about... Um... Seventh Doctor and Ace and and uh, the mood and the atmosphere, um, it is quite confusing. But I, I know the um, season twenty six box set that just came out not too long ago on Blu Ray has all the deleted scenes, and if you go back and watch all of those, it does make a bit more sense. And I've never read the book, but I would assume that reading the book would make it uh, a little less confusing, also. But um, yeah, you're right. I think it just needed a, a, a fourth part to uh, stretch it out a little bit and sort of explain things a little more. You have excellent taste, Brent. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's... Ghostlight, from what I read when I, before I, I watched it, um, I was like, this is, gonna, this is it. This is going to be my favorite episode. Like, it has everything that I wanted, I think, in Doctor Who. And I still feel that way. I still feel like one day it's it's... I've had people explain it to me. I'm like, the way you have explained it, this is like the best story ever. But I just, it doesn't, it doesn't work. I think on screen for me. Uh, maybe I'm just not smart enough to to make those connections. But I also feel like you, you, or at least I, when I watched it, I felt like I needed to go back and have a science 101 lesson again about <laughs> control and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> I think some of my favorite 
Doctor Who podcast conversations that I've listened to have been about Ghostlight. Ghostlight and Battlefield, actually just season 26 in general, um, I think the best conversations occur from from that season because there's so much to talk about. It's such a story-rich, where Cartmel and and company are, are really trying to change the direction in which Doctor Who is is headed and they just didn't get a chance to to do it the way they I think they wanted to or they were really setting it up to be something spectacular and it is a kind of a bummer that we didn't get more because I agree Cartmel and, and crew were doing some incredible work and oh that would have mind you if they had been successful then there would definitely not have been a new series yeah yeah, that's true. You're you're absolutely right. I think I think that's true. Yeah, I don't. I don't. We definitely wouldn't have gotten um, uh, McGann's doctor as 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 portrayed. It certainly would have been very incredibly different. I can't believe I forgot Battlefield on the list. Oh no! That, well, oh boy. See, and that's the thing about Battlefield, which I love, is it was doing something that the new series definitely kind of. Uh, carries on in that there are so and in big finish too there are stories that the doctor takes part in but hasn't realized it yet and i think that's what's so cool is that his future is coming back to haunt him uh in in a way that that we don't see very often um until it's kind of the new series uh, and um battlefield in particular i just howard are not more Arthurian episodes uh, stories where we get to see kind of that origin story. And maybe we don't need to. Maybe there is and I haven't seen it or read it. But no, that's, that's it because that was beautifully done and it's the last episode that has Brigadier Alistair Lefford yeah. Stewart. Yep. Uh, I don't count the Cyberman thing they did. I, I ignore yes. that. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah, I was, I was saying earlier that Ghostlight is the only story that made me angry and it's not true. <laughs> Clearly. But, but that, I was so angry at that that ending. And I know some people like it, and that's okay. That's the beautiful thing about Doctor Who. There is there is something for everybody. Um, there's a, a wide audience for for the show. And, I mean, who can blame them with over 50 years, almost 60 now? Uh, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of Doctor Who. I'm afraid it gets worse. The agents in control of Mason Industries... They're written house. What? She's there right now. Maybe that's a good thing. Somebody working with us on the inside. A good thing? This is written house we're talking about. They could kill her. Guys, it's okay. So what, Rufus and I were just supposed to go to work like nothing's happening and what? Yes. Yeah, it's gonna be okay. How can you be so calm right now? Because I've been through a lot in the last couple of days. And I fought it for a long time. And you can call it fate. Or God, or the Force. But I am meant to do something. I am meant to protect the both of you. I see that now. And I will. You realize you sound like a crazy person, right? Mm-hmm. We also know, as passionate as, as clearly you are about Doctor Who, we also know that when we bring a guest on, that Doctor Who is not the end-all and be all of their fandom. We ask each guest to to bring with them a television show that isn't Doctor Who. So, so Chris, why don't you tell us what show that you have suggested for us and tell us why you suggested it. All right, so Red Dwarf. Yes. 
<laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I could be Ripper too, but or Blake Seven. But instead, we're we're gonna go with something a little bit more more modern. I'm not saying the Doctor Who's not modern, but the Doctor Who episodes we're talking about are modern. Uh, Timeless. Timeless was a great show that came out on I want to say it was NBC, and only had a chance to run for a couple of seasons. But it was about time travel. It had a team that would go back in time and try to correct history. But one of the things that I loved about it is that they could never do it quite right, and there were always subtle changes in history that happened. And they would talk about those at the end of the show, at the end of each episode. And sometimes those changes were personal and devastating, like lost family members who no longer exist in the timeline, things like that. And those mostly stayed. And like that is powerful storytelling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When did you first start watching it? When it first aired. I saw trailers for it. I was like, mm, I want to see that. And I like the fact that it had a diverse cast of characters, which is incredibly important to me because media, television in, in specific, is a powerful tool. And the more that you get to see that diversity and inclusion in people that look like you, that helps influence hundreds of thousands of people, more so than a book or a one-off movie. Because for a TV show, you keep coming back to, to watch it, and it's constantly in the news or circulating around, and people talk about it. Even if you don't watch it, you might see a commercial that pops up on television about it, and it will run for years. Like that, that subtle, constant influence and reinforcement is important. Well, when I first started seeing the trailers for the show, uh, my I mean, it wasn't the fact that it was a sci-fi show about time travel that drew me to it. Um, it was the fact that Malcolm Barrett was in it. And uh, I was a huge Malcolm Barrett fan from Better Off Ted. And I was like, I will I will absolutely give this show a chance. And I didn't. Um, it, <laughs> it came and went, and I didn't watch a single episode. It's all your fault. Suggested. It's, it's all my fault. <laughs> I was the – if it – I had just turned it on and watched. Brent, did you watch this before we started talking oh, yeah. for the show? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm trying really hard not to be a fanboy here. Uh, but <laughs> I <laughs> – I don't normally watch shows in the first season, but this one I did, and I was a huge fan. Um, I saw the whole first season on transmission, and then it got canceled. But um, there was the big campaign to bring it back, so it went to a second season. But for some reason, I wasn't able to watch the second season. And I didn't even know there was a Christmas movie to wrap it up until, you know, last week. But um, I really love this show. I love how the pre-credits sequences build up to the title card. I love that uh, it's a real binge-worthy show, too, like 24 mm-hmm. used to be, with the cliffhangers at each end, uh, at the end of each episode. Um, and it's also a really educational show, too. I've learned a lot of things watching this, which we'll get to later. Um, I love the fake names, like John McClane and Hans Gruber and Agents Taylor Swift and Timberlake. <laughs> but um, even though there are a couple of things that I had a problem with, we can talk about later, but... Uh, there's nothing that would make me dislike the show or stop watching it. Um, also, side note, Matt Lanter, who plays Wyatt, is coming to Raleigh Supercon, or whatever it's called now. Uh, and he's also apparently the voice of Anakin Skywalker in the Star Wars animated shows. Well, that's I didn't cool. Know that. yeah, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know, that. know that. I haven't I haven't watched much of the way of animated Star Wars, but, uh, uh, well, I'm going to go to the convention just because, my God, I miss conventions so much. Uh, that gives me one more reason to do so. Um, we I, again, it was one of those shows where I didn't. I had, it looked interesting, and I just wasn't watching TV. Uh, there's something about 
um, watching TV the, the night of. I just don't do it. Uh, even even today, I don't do it. Um, there's something but nice about having streaming. It's just made me kind of a lazy watcher. It's my bad. I don't have cable, so I can't watch on uh, as it airs TV shows. Uh, and I haven't for years. Uh, but this was always one of those shows where Sci-Fi Show with Malcolm Barrett always was in the back of my mind. And uh, not too not too long ago on NPR, uh, Glenn Weldon was talking about how much he enjoyed the show, and it sort of kind of brought it back in. And so when you suggested this program, I was like, "This is such this is kismet." I'm so excited because I got a chance convincing convincing my wife to binge a show with me. Uh, for that I'm watching for the podcast it's not always the easiest thing and we watched two episodes and she was like I'm in let's do this watch the whole thing in a week we watched both seasons in a single week um, we were watching three episodes a day and uh, couldn't be happier with the program um, well in general <laughs> we'll talk about uh, more specifics so yeah very cool um, wanted to just talk a little bit more about the diversity in the cast because it's one of the first things that you mentioned not only just the diversity in the cast as far as the actors are concerned but the diversity in the storytelling um brent you alluded to that this was a historical show and you learned something so now i'm really curious what did you learn about what was what (laughs) what historical story did you not know about that you learned on this show uh, well, and and Chris, definitely the same question for you when we get a chance to it. Well, I remember uh, the first time I watched this. Um, my favorite episode of the whole series is the one about Jesse James and the Long Ranger. Okay. And um, I had no idea that the Long Ranger was a black guy. I had no idea. Uh, well, first of all, I didn't know it was a real person. I thought it was just something that was made up. And uh, it is based on a real person, Bass Reeves. And I was just saying uh, to my wife the other day, I was like, you know, it'd be really cool if they made a movie about Bass Reeves. It'd be awesome. And then you just said that earlier, and I'm like, what? <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, Long Ranger uh, Zorro, his origin was on here. Um, and long before, um, what was the name of that movie? I think it was called The Historical Figures or something uh, about NASA. Hidden Figures. Hidden Figures. Yeah, and uh, but. I think it was before that came out where I learned about Katherine Johnson in, in NASA on this show. So yeah, lots of uh, lots of really cool stuff. Oh, uh, Hedy Lamar also. I had I had heard of her, but I had no idea who she was. And, oh, yeah. and not only an actress, but invented Wi-Fi. Yes. So uh, that was that was and really cool the too. long lengthy battle that ensued about that too. Yeah, um, Chris, what did you learn anything? Uh, from watching the show, what jumped out at you? Um, so I learned a couple of different things. I don't remember them specifically now, but I will say that in the second episode, it did cement an idea that I'd been playing with that is sort of the crux of the Haunted West reconstruction timeline. If you guys remember watching the second episode. Second episode is the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Oh, yeah. God, yeah, and yes. do you know that the original plan was assassinate Vice President Johnson and Secretary. And they wanted to like make that happen. And so in my my Haunted West game, in the Reconstruction Timeline, what happens is that they're more successful when they assassinate Andrew Johnson because Andrew Johnson was a an ardent racist that sort of succumbed to the Southern wilds and the slaveocracy and became sort of their servant after they 
paid him some lip service. Sure. And he sort of like killed reconstruction. And so by removing him, you allow reconstruction potentially to flourish. And so that second episode sort of re-cemented that idea in my brain that I've been thinking about when I watched it when it aired in 2016. That's cool. Yeah. That's really neat. Um, I'm happy to, to say that um, I was aware of Bass Reeves and, and Bass Reeves' history, and um, I couldn't tell you how I learned about it, but I know in the last 10 years um, I, I had done some research on, on as, a, as a character and, and as who they were as a historical figure. Gary Paulson, who, who wrote the Hatchet um, juvenile book series, uh, wrote a really good Bass Reeves story. I recently read a comic book um, uh, that came out in 2020 called uh, Black Heroes of the Wild West, which super excellent. You learn about Mary Fields and Bass Reeves is, is among others. and uh, But to see that uh, visualized on the screen and um, the individual, the actor who played Reeves is so good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Domingo. Incredible. Domingo. Uh, well, I'll look it up, but uh, yeah, great. And the episode, and you're, Brent, I'm so glad that you that's your favorite episode because I think if I were to show any three episodes to to somebody and that's something that we frequently will do on this program is you know just recommend three but the nice thing about this is knowing that we only had 20 something episodes it was like let's just watch all of it uh why why not just watch all of it and talk about it as a whole and again there'll probably be some spoilers (laughs) um but uh this is definitely uh one of the ones the pilot the, the first very first episode i thought everybody on the hindenburg died I would have like, come on, you're 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 in a balloon filled with explosive gas, and it catches on fire. Of course, everybody dies. No, really, like just like, a few people die. That's insane to me. I, I I thought for sure I was so I was so confident in my assurance that everyone died on it. And when they said, "Oh yeah, only twenty two people die" or whatever it was, I was like, "Really? That okay?" Uh, but the thing that really blew me away among just how good the the show is, is in the second season. Uh, uh, let's see. No, da, 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 da. yeah, the seventh episode in the second season is called Mrs. Sherlock Holmes. I had never heard of Grace Humiston, um, and as yeah, a Sherlockian, neither. Uh, uh, I I immediately went out, like that night. I ordered the book of her life. Uh, it arrived fairly recently, and I haven't got a chance. I'm I got a whole bunch of graphic novels I got to catch up with, but um, once those are done. Uh, Mrs. Sherlock Holmes by Brad Rica is going to be my next read, and I'm really looking forward to that because uh, that episode about the suffragette movement is incredibly powerful. Uh, and so I think I think that episode probably is my favorite, though I will say um, the Jesse James one, you learn a lot of really great information. It is incredibly pivotal to the, the overall series, and it has one of the best uh, second to third act twists in the show. Uh, and so that, yeah, definitely, <laughs> I definitely think I'm not gonna give the twist away, but it introduces a character that's pivotal. Um, fantastic, yeah. I I think Chris, uh, as I was watching this, I think I, <laughs> I wrote to you after that. The um, the Humiston was like, I'm learning stuff. Television is supposed to teach me what's <laughs> what's going on. <laughs> like, can I truly be entertained? And what I think I appreciate about Timeless is it sort of feels like it's picking up where Doctor Who left off, which is, hey, it's a time travel show, and you can learn things. And yeah. I don't get that nearly as much as I would like um, in Doctor Who these days. I will, I think the thing that, that my takeaway from Timeless more than anything else, as far as Doctor Who is concerned, is by gum, 
you can do a historical episode of Doctor Who and still have it entertaining. Uh, this show removes any excuse any hen has about saying, well, you have to include an alien, otherwise no one's going to take it to your show seriously. I would like a pure historical, please. <laughs> Doctor Who, watch some Timeless and write a pure <laughs> historical because uh, you could do it and... And there is no excuse. There's zip, zip, zip excuse. Yeah, you know, I have always heard that where they say, oh, well, it's not Doctor Who unless you put an alien in. I'm like, why? Because that's how the show started was that it was educational. And there were a lot of educational historical things that you could learn from Doctor Who, especially from the Hartnell era. Yes. And they don't they don't really do that anymore. I had never heard of the Mary Celeste until I watched The Chase. Yeah, me too. They've tried, but they, they haven't pulled off doing historical episodes very well. They have Because part of it is, it's just not costumes. It's actually building the character interaction, interactions and dynamics. So that's more of a focus on the relationship the characters are going through and bringing that to the forefront. But instead, they frequently have the alien be in the forefront and the character's interactions be like the tertiary story. Yeah. And that doesn't work. Yeah, I think they came really close in the uh, Van Gogh episode, but they had to have that stupid space chicken in there. That was just the <laughs> dumbest thing ever. Like, if they took that out, it would have been a fantastic episode. Please, Brent, space turkey. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, I was thinking um, of Thin Ice, actually. Thin Ice is uh, it really feels like a historical episode in, in many ways with the ice fair. You know, learning learning about that and just the general racism of the time, uh, having the Doctor interact with racism, which is not something that we had really seen the Doctor do. Um, uh, and then the giant creature that lives in the Thames technically is not an alien. It is something that has just always sort of been there. So it could be argued as a historical, but the fantastic aspect of that, that story, i.e. the creature... Um, I think it scoots it out of the pure historical, and, and that's a, kind of a bummer because I think there's a there's a way to have done that without uh, that story without the creature, and I think that I would have liked to have seen that. I, one of my favorite episodes of Doctor Who, just bar none, is the Unicorn and the Wasp with Agatha Christie. Learned a lot about Agatha Christie. I didn't didn't know. Uh, now I have no issues with the Vespa form at all. Uh, I love I love that, and I love all aspects of it. But it could have been, it very easily could have been a, a uh, pure historical as well. Yeah, I had no idea she went missing for, what was it, three days? Yeah, something uh, longer than that, but yeah. Oh. I will say that if you aren't familiar with the works of Agatha Christie, don't watch that episode because they give away a lot of the really good <laughs> endings. And I think Agatha Christie is possibly one of the greatest writers of all time. And it, it would be a bummer to not have known uh, and watched an episode and then go, wait, maybe I should listen, uh, read Murder on the Orient Express. Oh, wait, I already know how it ends. Uh. <laughs> Content warning, also problematic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ex exceedingly so, and, and especially when you're dealing with the, the, the author of the, the the story. So, yeah. Or are you talking about Agatha Christie? I'm speaking somewhat about Agatha Christie and titles of books and some oh, other things. Oh my Just goodness! To, Original titles of books. This is your warning for people that decide before they go diving into Agatha Christie to be prepared. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you uh, and then there were none. Went through a couple of different uh, title changes and uh, and rightfully so, rightfully so. Um, 
Yeah, I had the original title on my shelf as a kid, and uh, I even then I was just kind of like, "That's not right." Um, <laughs> uh, I'm curious if either of you have watched the Ministry of Time uh, show that was produced in Mexico um, a couple of years before Timeless came out. Are you familiar with this, the Ministry of Time? No, not at all. So nope. the Ministry of Time, which the uh, I don't speak Spanish. I, I will slaughter it if I try to describe it. It's like El Misterio of Time, uh, Tiempo, um, is a show about three individuals that work for a mysterious organization. A terrorist steals a time machine. It's not a time machine. It's a door that opens, um, and these three individuals, an expert, a soldier, and a technician, have to travel through the door to change, to keep them from changing. Anyway, um they sued the the creators of Timeless because it was proved it was it was um, it was settled out of court, but um, they had sent scripts. There's proof that they had sent scripts for for an American version of the show that they are they had promised to the original creators of the Ministry of Time, and then uh, that didn't go anywhere. And then a year later, the show started coming out, and so. Um, I have watched a couple of episodes. It is, uh, it it's subtitled. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. Occasionally, will it'll it'll drop. It's guys, it's really good. It's really good. It's not the same. You know, it's 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 clearly a, a Spanish speaking show, and and it's it, it deals with Spanish history, but and its budget is uh, very small, but it's really good, and it's it's very clearly um, the show that Timeless is 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 copying. Um, which is kind of a bummer. I hate to see that. Then I haven't, I haven't seen it or read about it yet, but just from how you're describing it, is it at all like the show from the sixties called the time tunnel? Oh, time tunnel. Oh my goodness. Um, you know what? Wow. There, boy, there are some similarities for time tunnel. There are no original stories. Are there? (laughs) Cause time tunnel, they sort of like made a door. If I remember right, that they would go through to do stuff. Right. Who was in that? I'm going to tunnel. Hence the name of the show. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't, God, I didn't even think about that, but you're right. And I'm not casting dispersion on the Timeless. It's a great show. But um, if you, as a fan of Timeless, wish there were more seasons, I think there's five seasons of the Ministry of Time. So, um, you know, the where Timeless went is not where the Ministry of Time went. But I think it's just the, the, the seed of that idea. But you're right. Time tunnel, man. That's, ooh. Brent, we got to do some time tunnel. When the uh, Sci-Fi Channel premiered in the '90s, they were showing a lot of time tunnel. So I saw two or three of them. Uh, Chris, what would you say that this Timeless's um, greatest strength is, as as far as a show? Like, if you're pitching this show to somebody, um, what is it? What is it that you really draw their attention to? I would probably say the my pitch would be an action-oriented soap opera historical piece did the uh do you like the soap opera the soap operatic aspects of the show because it's 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 very drama drama yeah well because i love like the first two seasons of twin peaks and twin peaks in and of itself is a soap opera but you need the soap opera bit because that's what really hooks in hooks people in you need Mm -hmm. them to care about the characters the characters is the most important part of the story like it's the history is really important but no one's going to care about the history if they don't care about the characters that are interacting with the history and what happens to them. Yeah, no, I think you're you're absolutely right. Did you watch uh, the entire series when it was on the first time, or 
Yeah, uh, I knew when they, I knew when it was canceled, how it was canceled for three days, and they got a second season, then it was canceled, and how then they gave them a Christmas movie that was very much. Then I felt, well, that's incredibly Doctor Who. They're going to give me like a Christmas special or a yeah. holiday special, <laughs> right? Well, what about a uh, favorite characters? I, I think that's going to be pretty easy. My favorite character is going to be Rufus, the yeah, yeah. the engineer slash pilot, um, kind of the heart of the show in his own way. Oh yeah. yeah. Great. Yeah, to me, uh, Rufus was my favorite, like right off the bat. And I had never heard of Malcolm Barrett, but um, I don't know if it was his acting or his personality or just something just drew me right to him when he started. And I was like, this guy's my favorite. That and means- I, I always have to give a shout out to Patterson Joseph because Patterson Joseph is incredible. Yeah. And yeah. It, even sort of a Doctor Who tie back with Patterson Joseph on the show. Yeah, every time there's a new doctor supposed to be coming, his name always pops up, and I think he would be a great doctor. Well, he turned the role down. He was he was offered the role before Tenet, and uh, oh. he he chose not to take it. If you've read um, the writer's tale, uh, uh, Davies Davies offered the role to Patterson Joseph, and he I I, I don't think it ever explained why, but uh, he definitely the role was his at one point in time. Uh, listeners, if I'm wrong, please write in, correct me. But I, I, I think I remember reading that he was offered it, and I wasn't as familiar with Patterson Joseph. I've I've seen him in in episodes, and and I, I feel like he's in um, Neverwhere among others. But this show really made me go, we missed out on something. Really, I can see, I can see that, and his episode with the Delta Blues. And I, I think mm-hmm. that's that's definitely his episode. There's, yeah. uh, they bring in the second season the the secondary characters definitely are brought into the forefront a little bit, and I like that because I I like an ensemble cast. Um, three's great. We really got to know those three characters in the first season, but um, bringing everybody back in with the second season and giving them a chance to kind of play up and play against the sort of standard stereotype kind of roles they were playing um i really enjoyed it but man his delta blues episode is so good his his yes at the end of that episode is is brilliant yeah when when that one started uh he was i think it was him that was uh, talking to the other people and he was like you know we're gonna go back and and see robert johnson and they were like who is that and i was like i know who robert johnson is and like <laughs> nobody, nobody else in there did and rufus was like are you serious you don't know who robert johnson is I was like, hey i worked in a record store i know exactly who robert johnson is was i don't know if either of you have read the um the matt smith comic where robert johnson is a companion with the doctor for for about six episodes six issues it's so (laughs) so good yeah um friend of the podcast uh uh, simon fraser is uh was the artist on it so nice and so i have to ask since you've asked me who are your top three doctors matt smith is my favorite doctor uh and it, it has taken me a while to to definitely come to a distinct because I used to give that pat answer of whatever doctor I'm watching is my favorite but I think when I think about Doctor Who and I want to watch an episode that, that brings me some kind of joy um, it's going to be a Matt Smith episode especially series 5 almost any series 5 episode um, I think he's what I wanted in a doctor all along uh, I think I've alluded to I think if if we can include Big Finish I think Colin Baker is 
one in, in my top three, but only the big finish Colin Baker doctors. I don't really like any of his stories uh, in the TV series. Uh, I don't know about a third. I have a soft spot for Paul McGann just because that's how I first was introduced to Doctor Who, but um, you know we don't have enough stories really to, to make him a favorite, unless we count Big Finish. How about you, Brent? Um, I'd say uh, Tom Baker, John Pertwee, and Peter Capaldi. I am one of these people, I, I, I hate to say it, but I'm one of these people that's like, oh, well, if everybody likes Tom Baker, maybe I should pick somebody else. And <laughs> and, and so I, I was John Pertwee for a while because, you know, he was a James Bond doctor and he had all the action and it was really cool. But I just love Tom Baker. And, you know, the fourth doctor, if I'm in a bad mood or if I'm, you know, trying to relax at night or whatever it's a Tom Baker episode that I put on mm. and you know he's the one he was my first doctor he's the one I grew up with so he, he's just my favorite um and Peter Capaldi just of all the new series doctors he's just the one that um uh I don't know I just liked his era the best his yeah. three years especially his uh his third year with uh, with Bill because yeah. she's my favorite new series companion and uh, I really like that season I always find it interesting too when we start talking about favorite doctors it's, it, it seems like that's the way to, to go but I think um, if you want to kind of like know a little bit more about the person you're talking with rather than doctor favorite companion always seems to be a lot more telling uh, because there's such a there's such a greater almost diversity of companions and their relationships with the doctor really says a lot about uh, the era of the show and I think an individual and I don't know if I have favorite companions because there's so many good ones out there do you have a favorite companion, Chris? <laughs> Is it Ace? <laughs> I, I noticed the, the trickery of that question. You know, I think the best way to do this, I don't have one, though. Well, yeah. what about you? <laughs> no, I, here's the thing. Um, I, I think my favorite companion is Leela. Um, and, it, and it's funny because almost all of my favorite Doctor Who, classic Doctor Who stories are, are Tom Baker stories, but I don't think Tom Baker is my favorite Doctor, um, which is kind of a, a weird thing, but... I'm nothing if not tricky as my as far as my questions are concerned. I would I'd have to say Romana one, eight, yeah. and I have a, a soft spot for Martha, although they did not do Martha right. Those were oh. my three. Oh my god, yeah. I don't know if we've talked about favorite companions. Maybe we have, but well, all time would be Sarah Jane for me. Yeah. Um. Again, she was my first companion that I saw when I first watched the show. Um, but yeah, new series would be Bill. She's just fun. She's uh, really relatable. And uh, I really hate what happened to her at the end. But um, I'm glad. Which time? Yeah. Yeah, right? <laughs> I'm glad that they kind of walked it back a little bit at the very end. And uh, once upon a time, or twice upon a time. For some reason, I wasn't a huge Leela fan when I was a kid, but as I've grown older, she's she's one of my absolute favorites now too. Uh, she has one of the best uh, character developments, also, especially in Big Finish too. Yeah, I sadly haven't gotten a chance to really explore her as a character on Big Finish. Oh, okay. No, I know, I know. There's a, I know. Well, okay. Speaking of spoilers, again, spoiler warning uh, for Timeless because I want to bring it back to Timeless before we wrap up. Um, I want to know if you two were 
you know, given the, sh- the show was canceled, and given that, strangely enough, the the producers let us have an ending to this show. Were you satisfied with the ending two-parter? And that's, I guess we'll just keep it that, and I'll ask the next question after that. Were you, uh, you know, given given everything, did that sort of scratch your itch as, as far as the story is concerned? So since we're going to have to say big spoiler here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, for what they could do with the time they had, uh, it was acceptable. Yeah. Given the fact if, if no, I don't want to give you a spoiler. If season two had ended how it did without that, I would not like the show. Oh, yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 As, as we're all listing our favorite characters, I'm like, yeah, but, um, uh, you know, because again, Rufus for me too. Um, agreed. Agreed. Uh, I, there was not just audible gasps, but uh, very angry shouts at the uh, the penultimate storyline uh, in our household. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Brent, did you like the 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 finale? I did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as you were saying, if that second season had ended like that, you would have hated it. That's oh. that's one of the reasons I don't watch seasons. Uh, I mean, shows for the first season. Uh, because sometimes they get canceled, and that's the way it ends. And you're like, "What?" Um, our, there was a show back on Fox several years ago called John Doe, and it was really good. And it ended like that, and I'm like, "Brilliant!" Yeah, and it's gone. I'm like, "Damn!" And Firefly and all that. But anyway, this two-parter, I loved it. It was possibly the most perfect finale of a show I've seen in a long time. I thought uh, my only issues. I did have a couple of issues where that Flynn didn't get his family back and that Emma didn't get the cub up at I think she deserved she just kind of got shot almost off screen and uh and just laying there and I'm like what after all the stuff she's done uh but other than that I loved it uh, I loved the uh the montage ending also that recapped the whole series and and led right up to the title card there that was really cool uh, and this may be embarrassing. I don't care. I did a bit of a clap all along in my bedroom at the end because it was I was so excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought it wrapped it up nicely. I I loved it. Yeah, I thought it had some really good good parts. Um, I, 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 I hate to bring up something I didn't like about the show right as we're ending the podcast because it, you know it's gonna it's gonna force us to talk for for another hour. Uh, but. I felt that Rittenhouse uh, was in the first season a really good MacGuffin, and then it was a really bad MacGuffin in the second season. And so, uh, what kind of drew me to the show, uh, as far as the mystery of what Rittenhouse was and what implications it was going to have, I was so excited about season two. Maybe we're going to get some answers, and uh, we got no answers. Uh, Rittenhouse was just a MacGuffin, and uh, that part of it I felt was not satisfying because for me. I like a good villain, and I like a good villain, a villainous organization. And it went from being "we are everywhere" to "we are nothing." Um, <laughs> so that part, but as far as the personal storylines are concerned, uh, I thought it was really good. And I really liked the um, kind of coda at the end with with time being circular, um, because time is a good good time travel show is is always going to be. Uh, a loop in in certain ways, and so I, I kind of I kind of dug that that promise of the future. He murdered two other women besides Jessica. 
If I could go back and put a bullet in his head and stop him, I wouldn't think twice. Look, Wyatt, I can't even imagine what it's like to... It's just... You know the guy I shot in Houston? It's been hard. Maybe killing shouldn't be an everyday thing. Maybe it should be harder for the good guys. And Bass is right. It's getting hard to look in the mirror. How far are we willing to go? Uh, last question I have for both of you, and that is if the show had continued, what historical people or events would you have liked to have seen the the main cast interact with? And this is a question that I I, I pose almost in every panel I do for Doctor Who. So um, I'm kind of curious what, what folks would have liked to see because um, this is a show that wouldn't shy away from from uh, historical events and people that you, you don't normally hear about. So I think that's kind of the beauty of the show. So I'm I'm kind of I'm curious, Chris. Who who would you have liked to have seen, or what would you have liked to have seen? That is that is a harder one. It is, and I apologize for springing that on you. <laughs> I think I would have liked to have seen some stuff happen during World War II. Uh-huh. They go specifically to stuff on the home front and confronting some of the racism and isms back home while the war is going on overseas, mm-hmm. because that is a powerful story dynamic in and of itself. And then you have like the women back home who are actively working and like building munitions and factories. You've got black and other marginalized people that they wouldn't allow to serve and sort of telling their story while they're still dealing with oppressive government while they're supposed to support the troops abroad fighting for freedom that aren't necessarily fighting for everyone's freedom. Like that is beautiful, powerful story. Yeah. Brent, how about you, bud? Well, I think they would have found a way to go forward in time eventually. But if we're sticking with historical events, I would love to have seen them go to Woodstock and stop someone from shutting it down. And, you know, they run into Jimi Hendrix or Janis Joplin, that kind of thing. That would yeah. be a really cool episode. Yeah, that would actually I, – Woodstock, it wasn't even on my radar, but you're right. I think that would be – there's a lot of stories about kind of the importance of how that took place, maybe even with um, the film crew that was filming Woodstock for the movie a couple years later. Um, that would have been neat. Uh, you know, the one I was going to say, uh, I'm, I'm so glad that you mentioned it, Chris, was I actually would have liked to have seen um, the, not, not seen, I don't want to like to have seen it, but I would have liked to have seen some attention drawn to the Japanese internment camps of World War II. Um, and I think this is the show that that would have would have shown it. I found the show to be surprisingly brave in in their depictions for a a, uh, a you know a, a big corporation television show. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's one of the reasons it was getting shut down uh, is that they were taking a stand on really drawing attention to the less popular aspects of history, especially particularly American history. Um, that that, that which been... I love that they just didn't brush past it. Yeah, yeah, and they you know. And issues too. I, yeah. What I think potentially would have happened though, if they'd gotten additional season is that it would have moved away from like larger sweeping stories almost in the next to last episode where they focus on this one woman and helping her sort of like 
escape during unless it was the was it the Vietnam War, and they followed her timeline. They talked about how she lived into her 80s. They talked about her child and how saving just one life is as important as saving like all of history. Right. Mm-hmm. I think it would have taken more of a, a quantum leap esque move. You know, that's I'm glad you drew that a comparison because it, there it did feel in sometimes. I, I one of the things one of my things I didn't love about the story is um, season two starts with a really cool premise in that there are agents dotted throughout time who are slowly changing things. Um, and I don't feel that ever really had the weight that they wanted because they were so easily defeated every single time. And it, uh, but the, the balance is we got great historical stories that we learned information. And so the bad guy became kind of less important than learning about, you know, for instance, the, the, the depiction of Harriet Tubman uh, in the in the one story about during the Civil War is so good. And you, you figure, oh, you hand, you, you pull a, uh, a Back to the Future 2 and you hand somebody a history book about the war just so they know what to do and what not to do. Um, very clever premise. And I feel like that particular episode was one of the best examples of, of a good use of both the balance of the story and the nature of the sleeper cell agents. But um, again, Rittenhouse became kind of nebulous as to what their power was over other people. But still, good show. Really happy with your choice. Uh, thank you so much for bringing that to my attention, um, giving me a reason to, to watch it. Uh, before we let you go, is there anything that you would like to plug? Where can people find you online if you want to be found? So I guess I am going to ask you a, a weird, awkward question now, since you asked me that one about history that caught me off guard. Do you ever read my blog post about my pitch for Doctor Who for the 13th Doctor from a couple years ago? I did. I did. In fact, I sent... I, Brent, did you get Did you get that link as well? <laughs> that I, I, no, I thought I sent you that one as well, along with the, uh, the list of his top 10, so maybe you didn't get either one of them. <laughs> oh, well. Oh, well. I did. I, 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 I read it. I asked, as a fellow Whovian, what do you think? Um, there are certain aspects of it that I really liked and appreciated. Um, but as someone who did not watch the show when it, uh, uh, growing up, so I came to Doctor Who um, with the TV movie and, and through the comic books, uh, I think it your, there's a couple of really good aspects of the story, but it relies too heavily on having watched a lot of the classic series which is not available to modern audiences. Uh, but the characters, particularly of Ace's child, I thought that would have been an incredible storyline. I hope to God they figure out a way to bring Sophie into the show, and I think that's the perfect way to do it. And I think uh, uh, naming them Langston was brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. I, I thought it might have been a little nostalgia-heavy, but I, I like another opinion and I'm, I'm hearing it live so there you go fan there you go putting me on the spot there's that's my opinion I, I read it and went like it like it like it i would be lost as a modern day audience a casual viewer um and that's one of the things that i feel like that's a lot of a lot of the conversation that we're having with um this sort of most recent season is um how much of a balance the jody's recent season had between where Doctor Who is going for the future and how much it's relying on events from the past. But it is a conversation that is, is certainly out there and, and worth having. And I, I, um, if people want to read more about your 
uh, views on Doctor Who and such. Uh, do you want to tell them how to direct them to your blog post? Uh, no, they'd probably have a better time following me on Twitter. I'm uh, at uh, at darker underscore Hugh. Uh, follow me on Twitter. You'll hear me rant about Doctor Who, how I think it could be better, stuff I love, stuff I didn't like. But I'll also talk a little bit about gaming, um, some political views, and occasionally about some of the, the work that I'm doing, like Haunted West and some of the other freelance projects that I got to work on, like Doom that I was super excited, and oh Doctor Who. Oh, I want to talk to you about that. <laughs> <laughs> but not now. <laughs> Left another time. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us uh, this month on the on the episode. Sure, thanks for having me, everybody. And thank you for joining us on Who and Company. Who and Company, come for the fandom. Stay for the company. Thanks for joining us at Who and Company. Special shout out to Pixel Who for providing our logo. They can be found at facebook.com slash pixelwho. Who and Company can be found on iheartradio.com and Spotify. Or you can download the show directly from whoandcompany.libsyn.com. Contact us on Twitter at whoandcompany. Support the show on patreon.com slash whoandcompany. Or email us at whoandcompany at yahoo.com. Thanks, and see you next month. West is a lot different than I thought it would be. A lot more cold source. That's everybody looking at us like they want to kill us. Because the two of us are black. One's in. Oh, so it's like the scary version of Blazing Saddles. Nobody's dying, and we're getting out of here. You don't understand. I do understand. None of us have anything anymore except each other. That's how we've survived this long. No matter how bad it gets, we're together. We take out Ridden House together. We are going home together. Are we clear? She's right. Count me in. I was like better than a speech in Rudy. <laughs>